So I have a lot of people coming in, a lot of people going out, things that God is doing. Uh, you may come here to church, and you know, every week we've got a number of visitors. Uh, that's maybe, maybe even more on certain Sundays. We do things like have baptisms and, and things like that. But we get people coming here, and you, know, you may come to our church and hear something different. Now, a lot of churches you can go to and get something different uh, because they're crazy. And, and, you know, every church has a, you know, seems to have to have a gimmick today. And so it's always something and, you know, get people in. And, and that's good. That's fine. Uh, that's okay. Uh, but when you come here, you, uh, you know, you may sit here and hear something that you've not understood before. I mean, something totally unexpected, um, something that really sounds unique. If you turn with me now to the book of Obadiah, I'm going to give you a moment to find Obadiah because Obadiah is like the hidden treasure of the Bible. It is only one page and it is stuck in those sticky pages at the end of your Old Testament where, you know, if you have a gold, uh, you know, Bible with gold leaf around the edge, it's all stuck together in those pages. So be careful or you will overlook it. I'll give you a chance to find Obadiah. But there are a few simple principles of Bible study, which if you will use them, if you will use them, these principles will make you what Paul calls in 2 Timothy 2.15, an unashamed workman in the word. Unfortunately, those principles are no longer taught today which is why sometimes what you hear in this church sounds so much different from other places. Because today, we do not have the same view of the Bible. We do not view the Bible the same way as Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, and the saints of old. I say, not not we-we, but but church as a whole, Christianity as a whole, evangelical Christianity in America, even most Baptist churches, don't view the Bible like Jesus viewed his Bible, or the apostles. And so scholars in the seminaries today want you to feel ashamed because you don't know biblical languages like they do, and you don't know the cognate languages and the research languages, and you don't know patristics, which is a study of the early church fathers. Now, I'm a doctor. I'm your friend. I have my doctorate, so what I'm telling you is from personal experience. I know exactly what they teach. I know how it makes you feel. So I want to remind you of principles like these as we go along here in the school of the prophets and remind you about their permanence because these are your principles for believing Bible study. Number one, the Bible is the mind of God for humanity today. Either it is or it's not. And the King James Bible is the mind of God for English-speaking people. Otherwise, we do not have it. And it is locked up in a language you don't know, or it is lost over the centuries. And I just don't see anywhere in the Bible that it would indicate that God inspired something, God gave something, and the Holy Spirit lost it. Didn't happen. So the fact that it is God's words in English for you is evident by looking at God's hand in history and then inspecting the modern alternatives in the modern translations. 
So I think we can rely with certainty upon the self-authentication of Scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, not, not relying upon Greco-human reasoning and the opinions of the scholars. So almost every single week, something crops up uh, for us as evidence of that. It will also this week. But number two, as such, the Bible is self-defining and self-interpreting. Now, it is self-defining because the Bible is one self-contained unit of truth, which all came from the same divine mind. Therefore, its own usage determines a word's meaning. If you can see how God uses a word in Scripture, then you can define it correctly. Now, third, because the Bible is God's word, it mirrors God's nature in simultaneously being past, present, and future revelation. So the scholar is not I am. The commentator is not I am. God and the Word of God are I am. And since God is the eternal I am, Exodus 3.14, there is a multivalent nature to your Bible so that it has multiple simultaneous applications. So the key to determining how to apply any given passage is a matter of rightly dividing, just like 2 Timothy 2.15 says, starting with the fact, and this is number four, that the Bible is written to three groups of people, Jews, Gentiles, and the church. So all of the Bible is for you, but not all of it was written to you, and yet what was not written to you is still for you inspirationally and devotionally, even though it's not for you doctrinally. So do not limit Bible interpretation to the historical application in the common commentaries. Uh, that is simply the best a lost man can do on a good day. I mean, what, what, the, what you get out of the commentary is simply the best of pagan knowledge. Now, if you read ahead, so, you know, we've been, this is about the fourth week now in the School of the Prophets, and if you read ahead and you looked at the book Ovidiah, I know just what you're saying. You're saying, Alan, how can you make anything relevant out of this book? Well, let's use those principles and let's find out. Because Obadiah is the one book in your Bible that illustrates these principles so clearly. Because it's not written to Jews, it is written to Edom. And how can a book only 21 verses long, only one page, be so amazingly important? I mean, there were 12 other men in the Bible named Obadiah. And we don't know anything about this prophet outside of what his name tells us. His name means servant or worshiper of the Lord. He writes about 587 B.C. That was immediately after the fatal and final fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. So look with me in verse 1. Verse 1 says, The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. How can we have peace on earth today, Miss Universe? How are we going to get peace? Well, exactly because of what is described in the book of Obadiah. 
And the reason we don't have it now is because of this family feud that goes back millennia from a set of twin boys who were born to Isaac and Rebekah named Esau and Jacob. And the New Testament flashes some light on the history of Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, in the graphic description of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. So I want, to look at, I want you to look at your handout, but just focus on verse 16. Do not allow a root of bitterness to develop in your life, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now, if you have a Strong's exhaustive concordance, you can use its numbering system to trace that word profane person back to the dictionary in the back of that concordance. And there you find that the word literally means to cross the line. So let's utilize the principle of letting the Bible define itself because the Jews used this same word of the, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24, verse 6, when they accused Paul of going about to profane their temple. In other words, of bringing Greek Gentiles and crossing the line, bringing them across the threshold into the sacred Jewish precincts on the Temple Mount, Acts 21, verse 28. So here's our thesis for today's study. A profane Christian has no concept of the eternal, no communion with the spiritual, and no control over the animal in their life. I mean, that's just pretty much the bottom line. It's just the dog in them. And, you know, they are in the kennel or in the club, as the case may be. So a profane person boxes God out and lives as if he were independent of what God's word says about his life. Uh, if they are a Christian, if they're born again, they, are, they seldom worship, they hardly pray, and they never speak the word of God to anybody else. Now, if that is not the state of Christianity in these last days before the second coming of Christ, I don't know what is, because that is the New Testament definition of Esau. A profane person is someone who is defiling God's temple, and your body, if you are a Christian, is the temple of God by the Holy Ghost, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. So Esau is a Christian with no spiritual discernment who sets no value on his or her birthright in the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, they will sell their place at God's purpose in eternity for a mess of pottage, as it's called in Genesis chapter 25 right now. If they can just get that, they want to go for what they can see right now. They don't care what, about what God's word says about the future they're going to live according to today. So Esau sold the blessing that had been promised to his grandfather Abraham, which he, he owned by right of being the firstborn, and he, he sold it to his younger brother Jacob. For what? Well, Genesis 25 tells us it was for a bowl of soup, not even Kansas City barbecue, <laughs> like what his father Isaac liked. 
And it must have been chilly because the soup was red. So his name was changed to Esau, which means red. Genesis 25, verse 30. So you are what you eat. If your God is your belly and you mind earthly things, Philippians 3.19. Now time passes. Esau lives like a Bedouin in the desert. Finally settles on a strip of land just south of the Dead Sea. It's a mountain range that is called Seir in Genesis 32 verse 3. It's about 100 miles long, about 50 miles wide. Kansas City is about 60 miles long, about 30 miles wide. And, and trying to copy what God's command was for Israel, the Edomites killed the Horims that were dwelling in that mount, and they became cavemen, Deuteronomy 2, verse 22. So the Edom, Edomites were rock dwellers. Their father was Esau, their country was Seir, and their ancient capital was the city of Bozrah, which you can read about in Amos, Jeremiah, and the book of Isaiah. But in Obadiah's day, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's called Selah in Isaiah 16.1 and Joktiel in 2 Kings 14. Today, we know it as Petra, and it still stands, even though it's uninhabited. You can see a picture of it. They're on that slide. There are government buildings and homes 700 feet high, chiseled out of solid rock on the side of that mountain. And a pink glow radiates from the soft sandstone cliffs at sunset. So it was formidable. It was impregnable. It was an unassailable fortress because the only way to get into there I was built inside of an enclosed canyon, a dead end. And the only way to get in is through an opening about one donkey wide. So you can go there today. It's uh, in Jordan. You can go there today and, you know, you can, you can pay them to let you ride on a donkey and they'll take you down into the city of Petra. And that was the only way to get in there. I mean, they thought they had it made in the shade with a glass of lemonade. And nobody could get them. So the Edomites were both like their land and like their father. They, they were hard like their land and they were profane just like their daddy. So God brought Israel out of Egypt and was bringing them out of the wilderness. But in Numbers chapter 20, when they got to the land of Edom, the Edomites stood there and said that you shall not pass. And Israel had to go all the way around instead of going through their land. I mean, just like the Arabs today, they did not want Jews anywhere in that land. Look at verse 1. We've heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. What's he saying? He's telling the heathen, Arise ye, and rise up against her in battle. Rise up against Petra, Bozrah. And in its historical context, Obadiah is foretelling how Nebuchadnezzar is going to circle back after he destroys Jerusalem, 587 B.C. Uh, he's going to go down to Egypt, but when he comes back, I mean, he was your friend going this way. He's going to be your enemy coming that. And so this rumor from the Lord came out of the mouth of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 49, verses 14 to 16. The rumor, which was true, was that God was going to gather the nations and Tom Cruise for Mission Impossible. You know, that one Mission Impossible movie where they have to drop him down by a line and 
He's hanging by this thread, and he has to, I forget what, he, what it was he was stealing. You know, and his, his sweat is just about to drop and give him away. And, and okay, that's about the only way you could get into Petra. So they call the Gentiles, and they call Tom Cruise and say, look, Mission Impossible, we're going we're gonna to come back, and we're going to do the impossible. We're going to overthrow Petra. And Nebuchadnezzar did that as he traveled all the way down to Egypt in obedience to the prophecy of Jeremiah 43. Now, why did God say that, and why did God do that to Edom? Well, the reason is given in verse 3. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. And you know, the problem we have in understanding this verse is we've lost our sense of proportion about sin because too many pastors and too many pulpits spend so much time um, working on specific sins in society. Okay, so they have certain pet sins, and that's kind of what they preach against all the time. You go to their church, that's one of their gimmicks. It's just they're against this thing, and they want you to be against this thing with them. And so, so now we've totally forgotten about the natural manifestation of the root sin, which is so much more deadly and so much more pervasive. So the sin of sins, the mother of all sins, is right here, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. And that happens as much to the pastor as it does to the partier, and as much to the commentator as it does to the clubber. Because let me hit you with this definition. Pride of heart is the attitude about life which declares that you're able to do without God. So every lost person is Edom, every saved Christian living carnally as Esau, just like Esau, he profanes God whenever he thinks he can box God out and get away with it. And you can see right here the complete pathology of the attitude of the Arabs toward Israel in, three, in, in just these three statements. Number one, the supreme manifestation of pride is your justification of being cruel to others. So Edom is... Esau replicated and turned into an entire nation. It's cloning of an idea and a spirit and an attitude. And number two, the results of that pride are always expressed by your defiance. Look at verse three again. That saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? So number three, the inevitable consequence of defiantly hurting others is going to be God's judgment on you. Verse four, though thou exalt thyself as the eagle and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Now, if you compare scripture with scripture, you find that the eagle is a picture in Bible type of the major powers like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Ezekiel 17, Daniel 7, and like Pharaoh in Egypt, Ezekiel 17. And Obadiah's message to Edom is, look, I see you, but you are never going to be anything except a third-rate power, which is what he says in verse 2. And you may set yourself up thinking you're as big as those big guys. No, I'm going to bring you down. So you humanists, who have dethroned God and deified yourself, you who are so hard that you have set yourself up in a nest of self-protection, 
creating allies, expanding your security horizons. I mean, I, the Lord, will bring you down. Now, how? How can that ever happen? Well, look at verse 7. All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. You're just on the edge. I mean, just like I brought Israel to your border, and you refused to let them pass, Numbers 20, verses 20 and 21. Therefore, verse 7, the men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in Esau. He is oblivious. Edom said, I can create international... He said, just like we did after World War II, I can create international institutions. How do we want to make sure this is the war to end all wars? I mean, it was so bad, so terrible. So many millions died. It led us both to the atomic bomb and Barbie. It led us both to atomic fission and plastic, and, and that's been our bane ever since. And we thought, you know, we can create a lasting peace through international institutions, and I can appeal to everybody's globalist ambitions. So if I want a two-state solution in the Middle East, if I give enough money to Palestinians to develop their society, they'll never want to make war. I mean, I can develop a coalition. I do not have to look to God for the answer. I'm the, I'm the breadbasket of the world, so nobody's going to hurt me. So I will enter into political and economic arrangements and strategic military alliances, and I will be safe and prosperous. Well, what do you say? Well, I don't need God if I got my drinking buddies. I mean, I don't need God if I got the people I can go party with. I mean, as long as I got the sports team and the frat brothers and the crowd at the club and the intramural league and the boys in the hood. I mean, as long as she is my BFF and as long as he is my boyfriend, I do not have to think about serving the Savior or following Scripture. God's reply is, I can bring you to dust, and I can do it through the people and the relationships that you're trusting in and the activities that you're enjoying. So why would any Christian want his or her best friends to be outside the church? You say, Alan, yeah, but I mean, there are hypocrites in this church. Oh, get off it. There are hypocrites at the grocery store. There are hypocrites at your job. There are hypocrites at your school. And yet you go to work and you go to school, you go to class. So here's our first point for study. Focus on the people at church who are real, who can disciple you and edify you and encourage you in your walk with God. Part of the reason, okay, look, my name is Alan. I'm your friend. Can I just be honest with you? Part of the reason you have such a problem with the flesh is, is all your friends are in the world. Hello, somebody. So if you are a believer still running with the wrong crowd, I need you to know from Obadiah, some of the very people you depend on are working together with God, not for your making, but for your undoing. At least you're undoing before him. See, God's chastisement of the Christian is always ironic. It's always poetic justice. So verses 10 to 16 are God's eyewitness description of what took place in Jeremiah 52, which Jeremiah did not record about the fall of Jerusalem. 
uh, you'll notice the Edomites stood with Nebuchadnezzar, verse 11, consenting to the murder and the slavery of Jerusalem, just like Paul did for the deacon Stephen in Acts 7, verse 58. They rejoiced at his slaughter. They spoke proudly of themselves, verse 12. And then they looted the city, verse 13, and they blocked all the escape routes, verse 14. So, verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. That's not a threat, that's a promise. Obadiah is turning up the heat, and you are simultaneously reading three accounts. Number one, the destruction of Edom. Number two, the destruction of Arabs in Jordan and Saudi Arabia at the second advent. And number three, the destruction of a Christian's life. So let me pass on quickly from the historical application, because you can read that much in any Bible commentary. Uh, I want to set aside the prophetic application about the Arabs for a moment because we really took time with that in the book of Amos, and I will again next time in the book of Jonah. What fascinates me is how a one-page prophecy shows us, as Christians being born again, hope for victory over the flesh. And I knew I had to go there. I knew I had to get that. I knew we had to spend time on that because I'm much more concerned about the other 30, under 30 crowd that, that needs to understand these things. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, who had other rumors from the Lord, which were also true, said it like this. If you'll look at Galatians 6 on your handout, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, you need to highlight, highlight the words flesh and spirit, underline, circle the words flesh and spirit, because the most terrifying thing about this verse is how it is written to New Testament church-age Christians in the dispensation of God's grace. And in this day, there is so much confusion, confusion over sex, over gender, over morality, over marriage. But at the bottom line, and this is our second point for study, if you sow to the flesh, the flesh itself will become the weapon of your own destruction. And that is true no matter what our society says, no matter who in our society contradicts it. In other words, your struggle to express your authentic self is because the conscience that God created you with makes you feel guilty when you sin. And the struggle is not against how anyone else on this planet views you. You are in a direct fight against your own conscience and God. So it would be to your benefit to study the pictures in Bible type of three pairs of sons in the book of Genesis because that's where this all begins. They're Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. And in this trinity of brothers, the firstborn is Cain, Ishmael, and Esau. 
and they are a picture of the old man, as Paul calls it, Ephesians 2, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 22. The human nature which you inherited from Adam, Ephesians 5, uh, verses 12 and 14. Adam is the old man. You are Adam by your first birth physically because you inherited his fallen DNA. The men in this triplet who were the second born, Abel, Isaac, and Jacob, are the pictures in Bible type of the new nature in Christ that you get by being born again. Christ is the new man. When you decide to get saved, you are put in Christ. The Holy Spirit is put in you. Ephesians 4.24, Colossians 3.10, 1 Peter 1.23, 2 Peter 1.4. So each firstborn brother represents a different aspect of the self-life or of your flesh and your struggle against it. Poor ejemplo. Cain is the natural heart in its rejection of redemption. I mean, he's all for a religion of good works, offering up to God his fruits from the ground. He has no eye for the bleeding lamb. His pride will not admit his need for a substitutionary atonement. So he tills the rural ground. He builds the urban cities. And he finds the only meaning and reward in the life that now is. Ishmael is the natural mind in its repudiation of faith. I mean, Paul explains this in the context, Galatians 4, verses 22 and 23 and 28 and 29. Esau is the natural flesh in its refusal to wait for spiritual rewards. So for even just one morsel of meat, as Hebrews 12, 16 says, he, he sold his own birthright. Even though he knew from Grandpa Abraham on down that God's word carried promises of future spiritual blessing. He disdained God's word. He was ready to throw that away. But hey, these three men are the beginning. They are our origin story as a picture of the carnal Christian in every age. Believers on the campus, in the urban core, at the corporation, in our community who despise their hope of heavenly glory for a momentary gratification of their flesh, even if that moment lasts their entire lifetime. Could this be why Jesus was so bold to state in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, this is hard preaching because these 12 Old Testament apostles are hard prophets. And you know, the king of the Jews at the time Christ was crucified was an Edomite, Herod himself, just like the Antichrist is going to be, was of mixed blood, Jewish and a descendant of Esau. So what did Jesus do when he was brought before Herod? We'll look at it in Luke chapter 23. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. He ignored him. You know, Jesus sent him a message once, 
You can see it in chapter 13 of Luke's gospel, verses 31 and 32. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto Jesus, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And Jesus said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils. Now, I think Jesus might have been implying something by that. I cast out devils, devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Now, for the Jews, Jesus gave signs. He did miracles and wonders, but for the Gentiles, typically only did healing and casting out their demons. So the thing you better recognize from Jesus' contemptuous response to an Edomite king of the Jews is that the only way for you to handle the flesh is ignore it and oppose it. And once you understand how God defines his own terms and how Esau is defined by Scripture, well, then you can understand what Paul says in Romans 9.13. As it is written, and Paul is quoting Malachi chapter 1 here. He's quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And that, that is a quote from a prophecy that was made long after Obadiah's prophecy about Edom had already taken place. So for Esau, read Edom. For Jacob, read Israel. It is not a statement about Calvinistic reprobation. And this is our third point for study. There are some people that you're better off ignoring and there's even an element in your own personality you are better off hating, not accepting, not esteeming because God hates Esau as he pictures the operation of the flesh against your spirit. So check this, John 6, 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. That doesn't mean makes you faster. It means makes you alive from the dead. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. The word of God, the words of God in your Bible, they are life. Romans 8, 13, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Galatians 5, 17, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. Even the good that you want to do, you're not able to accomplish. So look, you need to pray for our youth, the spirit over the flesh. You need to be raising your kids, the spirit over the flesh. You need to be giving the example, the spirit over the flesh. And that is the job of this church through discipleship and ministry. And do not think you have nothing to offer. So, so next Sunday is the Lord's Supper, but we're all, uh, annually we do a ministry fair. We try to do it about this time of year so we can replenish and we get new people in working with, with our kids and, and in other areas. And you know what? Uh, you ought to go through. It's going to be set up there in the old sanctuary and yeah, it's going to be laid out like a Monopoly board. And, and each ministry has its own park place. And uh, you get to go around and, and at every table you ought to put your name down. And then later ask the question, now there's something that prevents me from doing this. 
I mean, I'm just saying, you ought to, you ought to sign up first, ask questions later. Because this is the only answer to the spirit of our age. And everybody under 30 needs to listen to me right now. This is the difference between you growing up to be an Esau and you growing up to be Jacob. Jacob stumbled, yes, but Jacob wrestled and would not let Jesus go. Genesis 32, verse 24. David, King David stumbled, yes, but David was a man after God's heart. I mean, he was chasing after it, 1 Samuel 13, 14. He stumbled, but he kept struggling to be spiritual. Do not be an Edomite anymore. Do your way out of doubt just in order to spite the devil. So historically, Obadiah tells us about the destruction of Edom inspirationally it lays out how you as a christian have to live after the spirit and mortify the deeds of the flesh in the deepest part of his heart jacob feared god i mean notwithstanding all his failure there was a principle within him that god could work on with his word god knew that jacob would give a faith response when he was confronted david did the same thing after he sinned with bathsheba Nathan the prophet confronted him. He gave a faith response. You can read about it. Psalm 51, Psalm 32. So God knew that he could bring Jacob to a place of spiritual maturity where he was worthy of the blessing he had gotten through skullduggery. I don't even know what that word means. But you remember, Jacob got the blessing because he kind of cheated Esau. He didn't really deceive him, but it wasn't a fair trade by any stretch of the imagination, I, and, and, and I will wait, neither is your salvation. You're saved by grace through faith, and you did nothing to earn it. All you are is Jacob. But God wants something in you that he can work in you to make you worthy of what he gave you freely by faith. And it's the ideal, an idea against that that God hates Esau hated that idea, so God hated Edom. And truth be told, at the bottom line, it is only by difficulty, by frustration and opposition, by trial, by tribulation, by affliction, that any of us Jacobs become Israel in this life at all, made into a prince with God. And notice in the final prophetic block of this book, verses 17 to 21, how the only hope for Esau is judgment by way of saviors. Now, there are no saviors in the Greek Septuagint translation of this passage, which uh, was made um, in Alexandria, Egypt. So the Hellenistic Jews who didn't even believe their own Bible couldn't believe that God would say this, so they changed it. Therefore, Modern scholars who do not understand what is being said here, because they do not understand it, they also change it. So there are no saviors in the ESV. There are no saviors in the New American Standard. There's no saviors in the NIV. There's no saviors in the New Living Translation. And the Message Bible takes the whole idea and turns it exactly around backwards. And there's no deliverance on Mount Zion in verse 17 in the ESV, or in the New American Standard, or even the modern English version. 
Now, that's not your fault. Do not feel bad if you have one of those Bibles. All the blame goes to the skeptical scholars and their unbelieving scholarship. I'm just trying to steer you to God's words in English. Because what you read right here, verses 17 and 21, is the only way that peace is ever going to be brought to the Middle East. It's the only way. So I want you to look at the last verse in the King James Version for the prophetic application of this book. Verse 21, and saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So the day that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord, Revelation eleven fifteen, is actually the second advent. And that is the day we come back with Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2, Joel chapter 2, Song of Solomon 6, Revelation 19. So check this. Look at 1 John 3, verse 2 on your handout. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. So we're sons of God on the inside. We're saved, we're born again. Uh, we don't yet look like sons of God on the outside, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we are so much like him for having seen him as he is at the judgment seat of Christ, that what we are is saviors on his behalf. And I know that sounds crazy, but we're ambassadors already. Uh, we're saviors then. And that, that is what will be apparent then. And that is for you if you are saved. And that can be for you if you will simply trust Jesus for everlasting life today. Verse 8, shall, not, shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom? and understanding out of the mouth of Esau. And God sure has. I mean, he's destroyed it out of the mouth of the scholars, the commentators, and, you know, the, all the wise men out there. So you need to set all that aside. Put your faith and trust in God's word. Don't you want to get saved today? Don't you want to be free from the slavery of the flesh? And even if you're not immediately free, you're given the tools by the Holy Spirit answering to the word of God that will make you free over time. And all you got to do is pray just your heart to God, knowing that God hears. Look at Psalm 2, verse 12 on your handout. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him, because the kingdom shall be the Lord's. End of story. If you're already saved, you're alive by Christ's life. And it is as you believe, receive, and accept that and apply it by seeing yourself crucified in Christ and mortify and put to death the members of sin in your body that you can be prepared. Prepared for reward then and able to rescue others now and bring them into the kingdom with us. Now, if you're under 30, especially listen to me. Every Christian Jacob needs to meet God at the Jabbok. You need to be crippled before you can be crowned. Some of us who are older know that. Maybe not all. Maybe this word is for you also. You need to be broken before you can be blessed. 
But restoration and perfection awaits every Jacob. Ephesians 5.27, after the judgment seat of Christ, every spot is removed, every wrinkle ironed out. But judgment and destruction awaits, destruction of rewards awaits every Esau. And yet God offers every Edomite this hope. A Savior has already appeared on Mount Zion for you. Are you a profane person trying to make it without God? If you are not yet born again, I want you to recognize it's not just your flesh that is against you. It is this world and the devil. And if you do not get saved, you will face destruction with him. Because we are all born Esau's when we are born the first time into this life. That is why Jesus says ye must be born again. Because every Christian who's born again is born Israel. A prince with God up there, a Jacob who must have the spirit of God answering to the word of God in his life so that he can be made more Christ-like down here. You know, you may be materially successful, you may be prosperous and financially you got it made. You may exalt yourself as the eagle and set your nest up among the stars, but your confederacy with the flesh will bring you to ruin. Every head bowed, every eye closed. My time is up. I thank you for yours. If you're not yet saved by being born again, I need you to know, Jesus was crucified. He was buried and rose again for you. And his finished work on the cross, God accepts that as payment for your sins, but only if you will receive it for yourself. All you have to do is believe and receive. Just accept Jesus today as your Savior. I mean, just pray. Say, Jesus, I trust you today for exactly what you promised me. I am not going to despise what your word says I can have. I trust you today for everlasting life. So God, save me for Jesus' sake. So I'm trusting in his finished work. And if you pray that today, come up here and let us know. I want to give you a copy of my book, Next Steps for New Believers. And we want to, you know, sign up for discipleship because we want to show you to have no communion, no communication with the flesh. Hold it in contempt. Ignore it. Be made free by Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Die to the flesh. Live to the king of righteousness so that you can be made a vessel fit for the master's use in eternity. If you get fed and attend here, you ought to be a member here. Come up and let us know you want to do that. If you've, if you've been saved but you've never been baptized, come up and let us know. We'll put you on the list next time we do it. If you just need prayer, you want to be prayed with, prayed for, prayed over, come up and let us know. Go ahead and stand. We're going to let the praise team send us out.